Hello, and welcome to The Stakes, MTV News' serenade to politics and social justice. I'm Holly Anderson, MTV's Director of Politics and News, coming to you from our New York studio this week. When we last heard from each other, I was fleeing this very building hours after the Katy Perry full finale of the Democratic National Convention for a drastically needed couple weeks of hiding out in the literal woods. Did I miss anything? Coming up on the show today, the United Nations is finally taking responsibility for their peace workers starting the cholera epidemic in Haiti. We take a look at a new magazine called SOFA that tries to figure out just what it is that Gen Z is thinking. And Marcus Ellsworth gives us his poetic take on the Supreme Court's empty chair. But first. In 2016, Zimbabweans have organized around the hashtag ThisFlag to make their frustration about the economy, corruption, and police brutality visible. They've leveraged WhatsApp, Facebook, and Twitter to organize protests and stayaways. Pastor Ivan Mawarire, who created a YouTube video that triggered the movement in April, says this flag is about putting the government under pressure to respond to its failures. This is a bold move. Zimbabwe's 92-year-old president, Robert Mugabe, has been in power since 1980. His political opponents have been arrested and sometimes have even disappeared. Pastor Ivan and his family are currently here in the U.S. because of threats to their safety. It's a highly controversial departure among protesters who feel that leaving Zimbabwe means opting out of their struggle. We've been following the protests in Zimbabwe as part of our Africa Specific series, which aims to bring you news from the African continent that you might not necessarily catch on cable. You can find that every other week on mtvnews.com. Series authors Jane Koston and Belinda O'Donnell spoke with Pastor Yvonne last week in Washington, D.C. What is the power of the This Flag movement and how it essentially started at your desk mm-hmm. with a flag and a camera? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, you're not the first person to speak out yes. in Zimbabwe. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, this isn't something that's brand new, but mm-hmm. it is something that is new for kind of this generation. Can you talk about kind of what's the power of this movement that you've seen? You know, um, th- I think the power of this movement is, first of all, the authenticity of the voices that are speaking. And like you've just said that, you know, there's nothing new about someone with a camera and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, a phone, a phone and, 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 uh, and their flag. There's nothing new about it. It's been done before. People do it every day. But there's something about an authentic voice that is is trying to find is trying to find freedom. There's something about an authentic voice that is genuinely trying to find um, its own space. And this is what has taken place: is that for the first time in Zimbabwe, we have voices of people, young people, uh, and even older people as well, but m- more so young people that are taking ownership for their own future, for their own destiny. And the strangest thing is that they're taking ownership of the future by putting their lives at risk. Or should I say by putting their lives as the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate payment 
for what they want in the future or for what they want their children to have in the future. And I think that's what has resonated with many people, many young people. The fact that they feel like something is happening that is genuine. It's not driven by a political agenda. It's not driven by, uh, you know, a regional agenda. It's not a Western agenda or an Eastern agenda. It's just a Zimbabwean agenda. For the first time, there's a genuine Zimbabwean agenda on the table and everybody wants a piece of it. I think that's where the power is at, that genuineness and that authenticity uh, of what the cry of our hearts is. So talking a little bit about some of the issues that have been kind of happening on the ground in Zimbabwe, you've talked about how part of the reason why you posted that first video was because you couldn't pay your children's school fees. And right now Zimbabwe is going through a massive cash crisis that is, it's not selective as you said. Mm. You know, if you can't get, go to the bank and get money out, then I can't either. Can you talk about what the economic climate in Zimbabwe is like right now, and especially how that is impacting young people? The first thing that is very obvious in Zimbabwe is the level or the rate of unemployment. Um, we are sitting at, I think the last figures I saw were almost 90% unemployment, and that is shocking, shocking, shocking to think that 90% of our population does not have you know, a formal job. And this impacts a lot on the younger generation because we are all being trained in mass coming out of colleges and universities, hoping that we can get a job, yes, to look after ourselves, but to contribute to where our nation is going. And that opportunity is just not there. And Zimbabweans have done something amazing, which for me is just incredible, is that Zimbabweans have gone and they've become entrepreneurs because of necessity. I mean, people, these young guys have started their own businesses. We're seeing a rise in what young people are doing on, you know, with technology, you know, forming online businesses, which are not very big in Africa. Uh, but you see young people that are actually doing this. So, so, so in terms of in terms of the economy, uh, again, so there's there's the unemployment. Then there's there's the economy. We haven't had investment in Zimbabwe, meaningful investment in Zimbabwe in a long time. We've closed down more industries than we've opened, you know, in Zimbabwe in the last, say, 10 years. And we've seen more investors leave the country than come, you know, into Zimbabwe. And that has also meant that, you know, we take a, we, you know, we're taking a big hit in terms of growing our GDP, you know, and things like that. Um, and it's a very hard life. It's it's very hard life all around. And the thing is, when you go into Zimbabwe, uh, you know, sometimes you during the day you're fooled into thinking that everything is working. You think everyone's got a job, but no, it's people that are just trying to do something, anything, you know, you know, from a kind of a day-to-day -day perspective. Zimbabweans become themselves when when night falls. They go home. And at that point, every person comes to terms with the fact that they have not made enough money to put a meal on the table. They have not made enough money to send the children to school. They have not made enough money to get decent health access. And that's the reality of Zimbabweans on the ground. The fact that we actually are a people, number one, with a broke government and a people that's now a, 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 a people who are now being robbed by their own government so that the government can survive. And can you tell us uh, along those lines uh, more about uh, how students have really played a role in standing up and, and making the invisible visible through this flag um, and what they've been doing to really draw attention to uh, some really legitimate frustration? 
you know, Zimbabwe's uh, history of demonstrations and protests is actually etched within students' movements. And uh, back in the 90s, the mid-90s, about 1994, 1995, some of the biggest and baddest, if I can use that word. <laughs> you can definitely <laughs> use that word. <laughs> some of the biggest and baddest protests happened during that time, and they came from the University of Zimbabwe, where the students were protesting against certain policies that weren't working, or they're protesting against certain things that government ministers would have done that was not working. And it's, it's what Zimbabweans were seeing for the first time as protest. So it's always been students that have been at the forefront. One of the things that students have done in this new movement or this new uprising in Zimbabwe is that these students have taken to their streets, uh, putting on their graduation gowns or the graduation gowns that they're you know, about to, to put on at their graduation. And they've gone on the streets, not to picket uh, you know, or march, but what they've done is they've gone onto the street and they've started to be vendors. So they're selling sweets and chocolates uh, and then they play football you know, on the street, putting on their gowns. And it's a, what they're doing is making a statement to the world that we are unemployed. And they're saying that we spent four, five, six years in school, in college, only to come out and, and, and have nothing else to do but sell sweets. Now, the, the selling sweets are decent. It's a decent job, by the way, that people in Zimbabwe actually do. But these graduates are trying to say we could be creating an environment using our minds where the vendors who sell sweets can do better and so forth. But now we have to take their jobs because we don't have jobs. So this is a way in which students are protesting. Moving forward and looking ahead to what's next for this flag, um, what do you hope to see happen when Zimbabwe has elections in 2018 and how is the movement contributing to that build-up already? I think it's, it's now obvious that Zimbabwe is at a watershed moment. We, we really stand at the brink of the, the changing of the guard or the changing of an era. There is no going back on that. Even the powers that be understand that the season is up in terms of you know uh, you know change and something you know something different happening. So we are hoping that we can uh, band together as citizens and choose a government that we are proud of, and choose a government that we want, one that best represents what we want, and not one that just represents what they want. Um, and so already, what we are doing is getting as many Zimbabweans onto the uh, platform of, first of all, understanding that our, that our power is in our unity, number one, and understanding that our effectiveness is in everyone being on board. So this is a, a message that's now continuing to go out, that it's now a lifestyle to speak out against government failure or to register your uh, you know, dissatisfaction. It's a lifestyle now to do that, and not to do it yourself only, but to do it together with a group of citizens. This is now a lifestyle for us. So that's something that's already begun. So going forward, we want to get to a place where the change we want to effect in Zimbabwe is done so from the perspective of sheer numbers. We don't have access to the you know, electoral processes. We don't have access access to uh, you know, all the different things that government controls when it comes to elections, there is one thing that we control and that's each other. And so part of what we are now messaging towards as we continue to put government under pressure to respond to its failures, to admit to its failures, by the way, that's one of the things we want them to do. Because you can't fix a problem unless you admit that there is a problem. And until you, are, you say, I'm the one that's responsible, and our government has got no ability to do that. So 
along with pressuring them, uh, we're inspiring the citizens. One of the statements that's become near and dear to us is a phrase that we coined ourselves that says, if we cannot cause the politician to change, then we must inspire the citizen to be bold. And that's a mantra that for us is a game-changing mantra that we're emboldening each other to stand up and you know you know and to speak. So that's the game plan going forward. 2018, the elections come. Our plan is very simple. There's nothing secretive about it. We want to overwhelm the system. Finish. That was MTV's Jane Coaston with Belinda O'Donnell in conversation with Pastor Yvonne Mawawire. After years of denials, the United Nations has finally accepted some responsibility for their peacekeepers introducing cholera to Haiti after an earthquake devastated the nation in 2010. Since then, nearly 770,000 Haitians have been struck by the disease. There have been thousands of deaths. Jonathan Katz is a journalist who lived in Haiti through the epidemic, and he's the author of The Big Truck That Went By, How the World Came to Save Haiti and Left Behind a Disaster. MTV senior national correspondent Jamil Smith spoke to Katz about why it took the UN so long to act. Jonathan, you were the only full-time American correspondent stationed in Haiti when the 2010 earthquake hit. How long did you stay there afterwards and how did you see the cholera epidemic beginning to spread? So, yeah, I was, uh, I've been in Haiti for about two and a half years when the earthquake struck. Um, and then afterward, I stayed on for another year. Uh, cholera wasn't an issue for months and months and months. Um, there had actually never been a documented case of cholera before in the entire history of the country, which is why it wasn't an issue. Wow. Um, I mean, just to, to put you there and what it was like, this, this was horrific. Um, if anybody who's been in a cholera epidemic you know, somewhere in the world may know what I'm talking about, but if you've never seen one before... Um, and, and most people in, in the developed world haven't since basically the end of the 19th century. Um, cholera is a vicious, prolific killer that sweeps through a community and just affects everyone. People start getting sick very, very quickly. Um, the disease spreads like crazy. And within 24 hours, you can go from feeling completely fine to uh, being violently ill to being dead. Um, it's 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 an inc- it's, it's like something out of a, a horror movie. It's, it's just absolutely terrible. All right. So, um, given how widespread this is, Jonathan, how does the UN deny any role in this for all these years until last week? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the I, the reason they did it, I think, is basically for the reason that anybody would deny something, right? It's that people don't like admitting when they've done something wrong, um, and they certainly don't like admitting when they've done something wrong if, if it's going to come at a cost of billions of dollars and, and your job, right? Um, but the evidence that they were ignoring was incredibly strong, and, and it, was, it was evidence that, that, that we started gathering very, very quickly. I mean, uh, the, the first cases of cholera in Haiti ever known were, were confirmed on October 20th of 2010, and it was a week later that I followed rumors that were spreading in the country um, that a United Nations peacekeeping base was responsible for starting the epidemic. It was just a week later that I went up and, and checked out the base myself. And within a couple of days from that, based on the things that I saw at the base and, and other evidence that we were gathering, it started to become pretty clear that the UN was, was the likely culprit. I mean, it was so clear, it was so obvious 
to to me as a reporter, you know, just going up and, and poking around the base, um, that I find it impossible to believe that the United Nations peacekeeping mission in Haiti, at a minimum, if not UN headquarters in New York, was probably aware, even before I was, that they were the likely source of, of the epidemic. But the scientific evidence is unmistakable. It, it's enormous. I mean, the, you know, there are always small margins of error, but suffice it to say, the odds that a strain of cholera that was circulating in Nepal that had never been seen before in Haiti, in a country that had never had a documented case of cholera before, suddenly appeared for the first time in a remote, isolated river out in the countryside um, next to a base that was housing 454 soldiers who had just come from Nepal, uh, which at that moment was experiencing an ongoing epidemic. And it's a waterborne disease that appeared in the river and it moved from that spot down. You can see on, on the maps of, of where people died, you can basically watch the, the course of that disease going down the river into the country's main river system and then proliferating from there. I mean, the odds of that, the coincidence, are infinitesimal. There's, there's, just, there's really, really no chance. Right. So essentially, the only, the only reason that the UN was able to deny for as long as it did was because it wanted to, um, because it had the support of uh, powerful actors, such as the United States government, uh, which didn't particularly want them to, to come clean or, or to make restitution. Um, and I think largely because of, you know, what I would just call the tyranny of low expectations. I think people all over the world just think of Haiti as being kind of a, a diseased and damaged place. Um, and the idea to, to, to most people in the world um, who, who were, you know, looking at this at the time, um, that, you know, Haiti would have a waterborne disease epidemic that would spread as a product of bad sanitation just seemed like the least surprising thing in the world. They, they weren't looking for a culprit because they didn't think that one was necessary. Right, and the world wasn't really looking for it because they had these expectations of Haiti to being this just awful, just disease-ridden place. I mean, right. how does a country like Haiti get that kind of reputation? I mean, obviously, we, we, it's a long history of uh, of racism and all these different uh, factors that have fa- uh, that have fed into where Haiti is and uh, what fed into the the poverty that only was exacerbated by the earthquake. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of Haiti and how it got to that got to this point? Yeah, I was going to ask you if you had three hours. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I mean, the short version is uh, Haiti is. Uh, Haiti has a very unique history um, in in the world. It was the the first country ever uh, formed as a res- as a result of a, a slave rebellion. It, it got its independence in 1804 at a time when uh, you know the president of the United States, which was the at that point the only other uh, independent republic in the Western Hemisphere, uh, Thomas Jefferson was himself a slaveholder, right? And so it, it has had a long history of sort of being. Um, at odds with, excluded by many other parts of the wealthier and developed world. In its more recent history, you know, it, it is essentially still living the experience of a, a post-colonial state, even though it's had its independence now for, for well more than 200 years. And it's a place that is very easily put upon by, by other countries. I mean, a lot of Americans don't realize, for instance, that the United States occupied Haiti uh, from 1915 until 1934, you know, full bore occupation, uh, you know, thousands of Marines controlling the country, the American flag flying from their government headquarters and things like that. And so it's, it, it, what we're really talking about is we're just talking about enormous disparities in, in wealth and power. And 
It's just that this is a situation where you have extremely powerful uh, forces, right? I mean, the, 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 the United Nations peacekeeping mission that was in Haiti was by far the most powerful force that was on the ground. It was a military, it's a military force. At the time that the cholera outbreak started, there were 13,000 foreign troops. Um, they're riding around in armored personnel carriers, carrying assault rifles, you know, swinging 50 caliber machine guns from, from the backs of trucks. Um, this is a country that doesn't have an army, so this is the, it's a force more powerful than the Haitian National Police. I mean, these people were basically, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, from, from, from a, a perspective of force, running the country. And so it's not really surprising that they felt that they could act with impunity. And I don't think it's terribly surprising that they felt that even though there was such strong evidence from the very beginning that it was their negligence that was responsible for an epidemic um, that has now killed officially nearly 10,000 people in Haiti, but uh, some scientists estimate that, that the, the number may be several times that, right. um, that they felt that nobody could hold them to, to account, because what, what were you going to say to, to a bunch of troops that were running around with, with the most powerful weaponry in the country? They could kind of do whatever they want. Now, they didn't really admit to actually causing the epidemic, right? They admitted to a role in it. Can you, can you help me fisk that, you know, exactly what their statement was? Yeah, I mean, there are two things that I would say about it. So, the, the so basically, what happened was, um, you know, I've, I've been covering this for a very long time since the very beginning, uh, and you know, for the past year, you know, I've, I've gotten a sense that because Secretary General Ban Ki Moon is is nearing the end of his ten years in charge of the UN, that maybe we were getting close to a point where him thinking about his legacy, there there might be some sort of change in policy from the top. But you're right. They have not said, uh, you know, straight out, we imported cholera into Haiti. Um, we are we are specifically responsible. We are more responsible than everybody else. And I think that there are a number of reasons why they haven't. Um, for one thing, uh, at the time that they made that initial statement to be, they were still waiting for the response of uh, the federal appeals court on the second district, which is ruling in a lawsuit that is brought on behalf of thousands of, of cholera victims against the United Nations, which, according to the Special Rapporteur's report, could cost the United Nations as much as $40 billion with a B um, if they were forced to pay up. Uh, and so there are a lot of reasons like that why they were why, why they were maybe reticent to take full and enthusiastic responsibility. But nonetheless, I, I don't think it, it, we can't lose sight of the fact that after six years of basically saying you're crazy. There's nothing here. Please stop asking us questions about the, the, the science isn't clear. You know, and just kind of lie after lie after assembling after lie. They have finally started to tell a little bit of the truth. I think that's an indication that things are changing in a very serious way. You noted in your book that one of Hillary Clinton's first acts as Secretary of State in 2010 was to order a review of U.S. policy toward Haiti. Six years mm-hmm. later, how do you view her legacy as far as the U.S. foreign involvement in Haiti during her term and afterwards? Well, yeah, that's a that's a, another complicated question. I mean, I think that Hillary Clinton's biggest legacy in Haiti is the political mess um, that's there right now. Uh, as Secretary of State, she um, was as responsible as anybody in the world for um, forcing Michelle Martelly, um, who did five years as president of Haiti from, from 2011 until earlier this year, um, uh, despite the fact that he actually should have been eliminated from the first round of an election in 2010 that was held after the earthquake, 
Hillary Clinton flew down personally to see to it that he was put back into the race and then he ultimately won. He had a very, very shambolic presidency. Um, uh, he signed off on a lot of decisions that made uh, the U.S. government and American investors happy, such as uh, uh, you know, opening uh, low-wage garment factories that were producing things for Target and Walmart and other stores in the American market. Uh, but life got worse, really, for the vast majority of, of people in Haiti. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's Clinton's legacy. Uh, but this was something, I mean, Hillary Clinton herself, she, she actually, a couple of years ago, and I think it was sort of a it was sort of a, 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 a covering her own posterior sort of maneuver. Um, but she did sort of acknowledge, and her husband did as well in 2012, Bill Clinton said, um, they, they did acknowledge that the evidence shows that the United Nations brought power to Haiti, um, but they have not said anything about restitution. Uh, they seem very eager to sort of have, have the conversation move on. If Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the moment that this outbreak began, and while this evidence was coming out that the United Nations was responsible, she could have chosen, in her capacity as Secretary of State, and somebody who is very, very, very focused on Haiti, much more than, than most Secretaries of State in the history of the United States has been, she could have done something. She could have said, this is wrong, we need to make this right, let's, let's call for an investigation, let's do something, let's use the, the CDC, the, the power of the U.S. government to, to move this thing along. And she chose not to. And I think that what that really speaks to is that there's there's an you know in in her in her State Department and in this administration and in the U.S. government maybe just in all governments in general I don't know there's sort of an affinity for power there there there's more loyalty to keeping other powerful people from being held accountable or, or getting in trouble um, than there is worrying about the the fates of of, of powerless people who had no choice, essentially, but to drink polluted water and then no health care in any meaningful way once once they got sick. And that's, I mean, it's a really sad legacy, and I, I would be very interested to hear um, Hillary Clinton's thoughts about Haiti. Uh, she has, despite the fact that she uh, went there a whole lot as Secretary of State, the fact that she and her husband were both um, instrumental in uh, the, the earthquake recovery um, and, 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 you know, the years that followed, um, she has been conspicuously silent about Haiti almost entirely. It has not come up once that I've seen on the campaign trail. Um, I think that's a clear sign that she knows that things didn't go altogether well there, but as, as a reporter, I would love to get 20 minutes with her just to ask her what she thinks, for sure. Maybe you will, bro. <laughs> Maybe you yeah, will. I hope, so. I hope so. Jonathan Katz, appreciate you joining us. Okay, thank you very much. That was MTV's Jamil Smith speaking to Jonathan Katz, author of The Big Truck That Went By, How the World Came to Save Haiti and Left Behind a Disaster. And if you'd like still further reading on the subject, MTV News' Doreen St. Felix wrote this week on how racist stereotypes propelled and reinforced Haiti's cholera crisis. Every major company wants to know what's going on in the mind of teenagers, but what are America's whippersnappers really thinking? A new magazine that focuses on digital trends called Sofa aimed to find out. They studied Gen Zers, I can't believe I'm saying this, but that means those born in the mid-90s to now, and they hired a 16-year-old guest editor to take a look at youth culture from the inside. 
Julie Zeilinger of MTV Founders talked to Sofa co-founder and editor-in-chief Kaya Hoggle about what teens are actually like and what it's been like starting up her new magazine. So I think I'd like to start off just very basically, what is Sofa Magazine? Who are you trying to reach and what gap do you think this publication fills? So, well, Sofa Magazine is the brainchild of Ricardo Mesners and I. Um, we've been friends for a few years working in the media together and also um, well, we, we founded a company together last year called Hungry for Fortune where um, we do like live animations on sofas where we're talking to all kinds of people about mostly culture, pop culture, and maybe controversial things around that, um, or enlightening. Like, we chose Generation Z as our first topic. So we're not a teen magazine. We're, we're like a topic magazine, and our first topic was Gen Z, just because they're sort of misinterpreted and misaligned, I guess, in, in pop culture, where, in fact, what we discovered, it was so cool that they're really... Um, really pragmatic, really engaged, totally political, really hardworking, not at all the webcam sex people that we're they're made out of be um, in in just general ideas about them. And because they're tomorrow's leaders, we just thought it was super cool to listen to them about what they think about the future and um, what what concerns them and what they're interested in. And that's kind of what we got. So we were really happy. Yeah, so you're already talking about these misconceptions that exist around Generation Z, but I'm wondering if through this process you learned something that really surprised you about the generation or or the sort of key thing you think readers should take away about them. Well, I think, um, yeah, like uh, the main one is what I said earlier where um, what we learned about Generation Z that was surprising was how how engaged politically they are. They're total activists. Um, they're really questioning their identities and they're getting involved in all of the the movements happening right now from Black Lives Matter to, you know, the even now like the post-Orlando LGBT movements and um, things like environmental change. And, um, yeah, they're, they're really involved in wanting to make the world I think they're kind of sick actually this was funny they're they were all really really um pro Bernie when he was still in the race against Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. and when we delved into that we really saw how disenfranchised they're feeling and kind of sick of letting adults run the world and now that they have power through technology and their rulership of social media they want to just take over a little bit and um, create their own movements or political parties or, um, you know, to take action against things that they believe are wrong. So they're, they're actually a really engaged bunch of kids and they're super smart and they're organized and quite sober, actually. Like, they're not the sort of kids that are, well, of course, you, you can't say, I mean, I think they're also incredibly diverse and complex and so you can't sum them up in one way and I think that's what we also try to show through their voices is that they're not a snapshotable and maybe never maybe no generation ever is but it's becoming clearer through social media I guess and just visibility that um, they're not one thing they're many many things and um, they're definitely not all party animals that fall out of windows that you know with, with overdosing on drugs kind of thing which is what 
a lot of people think of, of teenagers. Mm-hmm. And, and you notably had a 16-year-old guest edit this issue. Uh, why was having a teen editor important to you, and how did you find her? Well, um, it was really important to us, actually, because um, we're not teenagers anymore ourselves. And um, although I've just I've just co-written a book that's coming out in Canada in September that um, looks at girls across North America, so my co-writer and I also went on a tour, and we, we went and hung out with girls all over the place, you know, from bedrooms to parties to classrooms to school dances to volleyball tournaments, whatever, and we got their voices and guys, too. We sat with a bunch of teen guys and um, also was really, were really moved by the stories that they had to tell. And so, um, you know, Ricardo and I also knew that we could trust um, a 16-year-old to tell the world from their point of view and that we had a right or maybe even obligation to listen. So we went hunting. We did kind of like what you do today. You know, we went um, scouting for her on Instagram and uh, we just loved her. She's so cool and we we still love her. Like she she did a great job and she um, sort of represents what I think I was getting at earlier with diversity and complexity. You know, she's... um, a Dominican girl, um, uh, so she's from an immigrant family and she's questioning her identity and identifying as a queer young woman and she's, um, you know, sending dispatches to the world from her bedroom on on her phone and so she's kind of engaging with the world from this point of view that is the future. So um, we're really happy with the whole the way the whole thing worked out she was great to work with we got like the full team treatment because at one point she got grounded and her phone was confiscated and we lost a bunch of content oh <laughs> so um so we got we, we had the full um teen experience with her and, and we loved it it was great so this magazine also seems to acknowledge and even focus on internet culture and you were saying before you know technology is really an integral part of being a teen today, but even beyond Generation Z and this actual issue that focuses on them, you chose to make a physical magazine in a sort of digital media era. Uh, Can you describe your decision to do that and and what you hope this physical magazine will accomplish? Well, we're printing um, biannually, so um, we're not, I think we're not going to be limited to print as our only voice because we're also for example we're going to be um at red bull studios in november um animating live sofas where we're we're getting um some young girl gamers again we're working with teens on this um to create games that we're going to exhibit as art alongside um some live sofa talks the print side of it complements it and and also deepens it and allows it to live on in a way that people who aren't present in the live performances can also um, hang out with it and have it and we really do believe in print and never we never believe that print is dying because people we're still people you know even though we we love our digital gadgets and everything we're still sensual and we like to touch things and we like to have things in our in our environments that we can hold and go back to again and again in that way that where you can feel it you know in your hands and stuff so i think we're we're super happy with um doing something digital in print that references 
print and digital at the same time. I don't know. I mean, Wired magazine, I guess, did it all all those years ago and continues to do it really well, but in in a very techy way. Like I think what we're doing is we're taking, um, but is digital and turning it into narratives where real people are acting in it. We can look at ourselves um, in these stories and maybe think more deeply about where we're going and what we're doing and, and really looking into the future. That's also one of our goals. We love the whole idea of prophecy and, and being able to see a little bit where where the choices we're making today might be leading into tomorrow. And if we have any power around seeing that, we can also maybe have powers in having more of, of a, a stake in our directionality or something. Finally, can you give us a sneak peek of what we might expect from future issues of SOFA? Well, our next issue is actually cyber love. So we're, we're going deeper into the digital space, but this time beyond teenagers. And then we're also looking into everything from like love relationships that endure across the world through digital means to new business kind of relationships to um, like webcam sex to AI and virtual reality ethics. So that's our next issue. And we have our other two issues planning out too. The the following one will be, um, it's called We Are Nomads and it will look really deeply into immigrant intelligence because we really want to hear from um, all the, the, these people who are being politicized in ways that, uh, like, they're being spoken about, but they're not being spoken to. So we re- really want to hear from them um, what they're feeling and thinking about and writing about and experiencing, and what what kind of intelligence they bring to to their their host country, so that we can kind of love them better because we think they're amazing. And then um, the fourth issue is going to be, is called Bra, and it's going to be on Who Are Guys Today, and <laughs> that'll be really interesting as well, because uh, the world is changing um, in that same vein that we saw with the, with the um, Generation Z, you know, with diversity and complexity and politicization of everything. Um, like, the white guy is kind of under fire, and we want to see sort of what's going on there. So they're all kind of related. They're all sort of investigative stuff that's really entertaining and all about again uncovering the hottest topics of the near future the now and the near future well that sounds incredibly interesting and we'll definitely keep an eye out for all of that uh, and good luck with this thank you julie that was mtv deputy founders editor julie zeilinger talking to sofa magazine co-founder and editor-in-chief kaya hoggle We close out our show with a piece by our poet-in-residence, MTV news writer Marcus Ellsworth. This week, he explores the possibilities of what can be done when contemplating an empty seat. Imagine an empty chair. What can you do with that unoccupied seat? Practice lines for your one-man show even though no one's waiting for your retelling as Godot? Or stare at it intently for hours, then give up when you don't display telekinetic powers. Or you could have a seat. Take several seats. Actually, take all the seats. 
if you're in Congress and have blocked appointing someone to the empty seat on the Supreme Court in the name of your favorite sport of turning governance into deadlock. When the SCOTUS score ends up 4-4, to four, it makes one wonder who this holdup is for. Ties keep the court from setting precedent, while Congress sits on its thumbs waiting for the next president. The wheels of justice still turn and stick and spin in the mud, the scales weighing our laws hang even for the want of a judge. That justice will be appointed by our next commander-in-chief, but this election may leave some watching in disbelief as they give up their seats. For someone who will do their J-O-B and not just throw tantrums in the name of the G-O-P. Imagine an empty chair and the possibilities sitting there. The choices that have been made from marriage equality to Roe v. Wade. This election will decide how the court sees justice through. And the fate of that empty chair? Well, that's also up to you. From New York, I'm Holly Anderson, and those are the stakes. Thanks for listening. It's good to be back. We'll see you next week. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts on iTunes.